The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. you pray with me again? Father God, we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear hearts to believe what you have said. We want to understand what these words meant. What, what do you mean by what you actually said? So we ask that you would block out any tradition, any faulty thoughts, anything which might become a hindrance to our ability to hear your voice and to respond accordingly. So, Father, we pray that you would be active in both sides of this transaction, that you would do the speaking and enable the hearing. We ask you to do this for your glory, for our good, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. One more time, please. I ask you to stand to your feet. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're in chapter 2. We remain in chapter 2. We read together verses 1 through 10. This is the holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So we find ourselves coming now to the end of this most magnificent statement. And really it's the end of a series of just... It's the piling up of beauty upon beauty. One incredibly long sentence there at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, followed by a magnificent prayer, and then immediately into this. Just deep and rich and robust theological statements from the hand of the Apostle Paul, but the words coming from God. He wants to make sure that we know all that God has done for sinners in our salvation. But we've, we've got to keep at the forefront of our mind the reality that what the Apostle Paul has set out to do here, he, he's not set out to write some type of theological treatise. He's not putting together a theological textbook. This wasn't meant to be something that was just studied by seminary students sitting in a room. This was the heart of a pastor. He had a desire that the saints of God might come to know all that he has done for them in Christ Jesus. 
Not only seeing the power and the working of God, but recognizing who they are in him. What he is doing in and through these saints whom he has called to himself. Now we spent a lot of time talking about this. The power of God. What does it take to make a Christian? How much power does it take to bring a spiritual, spiritually dead man to life? Now he does this with the purpose, again I say it's very pastoral in nature. He has a desire that they may join him in the praising of God. You remember the way that he began this entire thing. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He started with the doxology. Before he even prayed for the people. Before he got to any of the deep stuff. His heart was overwhelmed by what he knew he was going to say to them. And he was driven to praise right here in the beginning. And he's inviting them and he's inviting us to join him in this praise. But his desire isn't that this worship and this praise would remain in the sanctuary. This isn't just a call to worship. This is a call to a life filled with worship. The whole of our life lived in sacrificial obedience to the one who has saved us. Even when there comes with it a great cost. Even when there comes with it great suffering. Over and over and over again, he says, the reason God has done all of these things is to the praise of his glory, that you may order all of your life to the praise of the glory of God. As we get to chapter four, as we make this break with the apostle Paul from the indicative to the imperative, from the doctrine to the discipleship and the call to walk this thing out, you're going to see a statement there at the beginning of chapter four, where he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. But you can't work, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called if you don't know the calling to which you've been called. You can't rush ahead. We've got to saturate ourselves with these truths. And so he's making sure, in typical Pauline fashion, he's making sure that our theology drives the whole of our life. So we must be reminded that if our theology doesn't accomplish this purpose, if we find that our thoughts about God don't elevate our worship, if they don't drive us to all out obedience to God, if they don't increase our love for the saints, you're doing it wrong. If what you find is that the moment that life gets tough, the moment that suffering gets real, the moment that things get scary, you find yourself turning back at any one of these moments, abandoning the church and the saints, finding paths of disobedience, or finding that your worship goes dry. We need to come back to these fundamental truths. Now the reality is there are plenty of people out there with weak cotton candy theology. But they have all the appearance of spiritual fruit. They have all the appearance of obedience. They have all the appearance of love for the saints. They have all the appearance of real robust worship. That's why I made sure to include in there that second statement. Even in the midst of suffering. Because what you will find is this kind of light and flippant theology, it will lead you to a life that turns away whenever times get hard. It's easy to worship Jesus Christ as Lord whenever you think he's giving you everything that you want. Everything that the world has convinced you, you deserve. But will you follow this Christ as Lord whenever he leads you through fire? What is the line that you're saying here? If, um, something about the fire, man. Say it. If it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. Is that how it goes? 
He's going to lead you through fire. He's going to lead you through pain and suffering and loss and hardship. The question is, does your thoughts of God, does your theology, does your doctrine, does it so firmly root you? Does it lead you to such a mature and robust Christian faith that you find yourself immovable? Not drifting and blown away by the wind and the waves and the emotions of the moment. And so, while there are plenty of people that fall into this category, this light cotton candy theology that's sweet on the lips but leaves you empty in the stomach, we must be aware that there's another ditch on the other side, and that is that we just become a bunch of heady people that know a bunch of things about God. Over and over, I've warned you of this, as we have, we have dug deeply. I talked with David after his, went back and listened to David's sermon on a Sunday night. It was a beautiful exposition of the text, but we talked about how difficult it is to bite off 10 whole verses. And he said, you know, I'm not going to lie, Josh, sometimes I get a little frustrated at your pace. You move a little slow even for me. He said, but having stood up there with 10 verses and realized just how shallow it requires you to go, I recognize you stop on a verse and you dig until there's nothing worth digging for any longer. But the danger is that we become a people who leave our doctrines of God in here or in here. And it doesn't transform our life. So I've got homework for you. I've got a book I want you to read, a book that I've, I just finished reading, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Y'all know about this guy? Get you a biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's not very often that you will find that a theologian is, um, is martyred because he's accused of wanting to take the life of Adolf Hitler. It's a man that suffered deeply for his faith and for his conviction. And he wrote this book. It's, it's meant to be an encouragement. It's meant to be an instruction. It's, it's, it's meant to be an exhortation to what life looks like in suffering. This is a book that he wrote about what the life of the Christians, what the life of the saints looks like in an underground seminary. These men were hiding underground because of the Nazi regime. What does it look like to continue to follow Christ? This doesn't replace scripture. This doesn't replace your Bible study. But it's, a, it's an easy book. 20 pages with big print. 120 pages, not 20. 120 pages with big print. You ought to be able to work through it in the afternoon. I'd love for us all to be reading this together. I looked it up before I came up here. It's 1050 on Amazon, something like this. If you need the 1050, come see us. We will be glad to get you a copy. We've got to make certain that what we know about God, the thoughts that we have about God, the theology, it's affecting the whole of our life. And so what we find here as we come, with all of that in mind, is we come here to the conclusion of this section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We find here in verses 8 and 9 really a summary of everything that's come before it. That's what that word for does there at the beginning of verse 8. For, it ties it to everything that just has come before it. Everything that I've spent the last 13 months trying to explain to you, trying to show you. And you might say, well, then why didn't you just put it in two sentences like Paul? Well, firstly, because I'm not the Apostle Paul. But secondly, you must remember that Paul spent more than three years with these people. He's reminding them of things he has already instructed them in. And he's modeled for them. So we see here in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In short, what Paul is saying here is that the true and ultimate and decisive reason why you're a Christian, the reason why you're a follower of Christ, the reason why you are headed to heaven, why so many others are not. The reason why two men, the question I asked you at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, isn't it? 
How can two people be born into the same house with the same parents, taught the same theology, brought to the same church, and yet one a follower of Christ while the other runs like the devil? According to the Apostle Paul, the answer is one singular thing, the grace of God. It is the grace of God that we owe everything in this Christian life to the one who declares, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll be merciful to whom I will be merciful owing to the sovereign grace of God. And the way that Paul does this is he really, he makes, a, he makes a positive statement and then a negative statement to make clear what the positive statement means. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's the thing that did happen. By grace you are saved through faith. Now the thing that didn't happen, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So for by grace you have been saved through faith. A straightforward statement. Salvation comes by grace. But we do well to ask ourselves, what does grace mean? Open in any hymnal. We've taken them away so you can. But if there was a hymnal in front of you, you'd open your hymnal. Look at any list of spiritual songs. And what you'll find very quickly is that people love to sing about the grace of God. We love to rejoice in the grace of God. We have happy thoughts about the grace of God. But go to the average Christian and ask them very well, what is the grace of God? They'll be stuck wrestling for an answer. Because for many, it's a little more than just this vague idea of God's goodness. This vague idea of God's kindness. This, this warm feeling, these affections that God might have towards men. It's a, it's a trait or a disposition to treat men better than they deserve. And certainly we have to begin there because grace, just like everything else, it begins in the nature and the character of God. It's grounded in God. It has to be, as I've made clear, because man is so very unlovable, worthy of nothing but his wrath. And so we begin with the idea that grace is, in fact, many people will give you a very simplistic, and there's nothing wrong with this definition, that grace is unmerited favor, and unmerited is key. If it required merit, if grace were a thing that must be earned, then we would all be out of luck. There would be no one receiving grace. So grace is the unmerited favor of God, but this grace, it begins in the character and the nature, and as I've said very often, the promises of God. Now you recall last week we talked about the immeasurable riches of God's grace. There's an abundant storehouse. God never runs out, and every time I think about this, I can't help but think about you young mothers. Husbands, you know this experience when you come home from work and you look at your wife and she's had a day of babies hanging all over her, just taking everything that she has, every ounce of love, every ounce of concern, every ounce of concentration that she has. You come home and you look to your wife and you ask, what's for dinner? You want a hug or a kiss or some affection from her? And your wife looks and what does she say? I've got nothing left to give. But this is never the case with God. can never exhaust the immeasurable riches of his grace. So it's fine and good. Yes, we begin with this. We should begin with this, that the disposition of God that's grounded in his nature and nothing that he sees in us, nothing that we have done or nothing that we will do. But scripture makes clear that this isn't just a disposition. This isn't just thoughts. This isn't just warm feelings. This just isn't some emotion that God has towards his people, that grace very much is an action. It's an activity. It's a power. It's a thing that comes breaking into history and to time. That the grace of God, it's not 
impotent like the thoughts of men. Listen, I love you people. I love you dearly. And there's many good things that I've intended to do for you. There's many warm thoughts that I've had for you, but either because I've got finite time or finite resources or my own sin just distracts me and draws me away. There's things that I would love to do for you. There's warm affections that I have for you that I just can't make good on. Never the case with God. We see in Psalm 145.8, the Lord is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the nature of God. That's who God is. Were there no humans, this would be who God is. Were there no creation, this would be still who God is. He doesn't depend on us to make him gracious. But it goes on to say, the Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. That's the activity. The nature of God driving him to act for the goodness of all his creation. And at its most at its broadest term, at its at terms, on its most basic level, this is the grace of God. His goodness towards all of his creation, his unmerited favor and goodness towards all of creation. And again, we must take this from the standpoint, we must begin with the reminder of who man is in Adam. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not only unmerited favor, demerited favor. Enemies of God. Deserving of nothing but his wrath. Therefore, anything short of immediate death, anything short of the full weight of hell being poured into our lives today is grace. It's more than we deserve. And over and over and over again, we see this goodness, this common grace, this benevolence of God being poured into the lives of people who curse his name and will do so until their dying breath. Every new day, every drink of cold water, every breath of fresh air, every hug from a loved one, every healing from illness, every dollar to pay a bill, all of this is the grace, the unmerited favor and goodness of God. And we see that God seems to distribute it evenly. Well, not evenly, but evenly amongst non-believers and believers alike. Oftentimes, I would argue with you that we see in the lives of the unbelievers, they receive more of this common grace at times. The riches and the health and the abundance. This is why we see so many of the cries that we see from King David in the Psalms. How long will you allow them to prosper, O Lord? How long will you allow it to appear as though they are victorious? So anything short of hell and death in the now, this is the grace of God. But as I've reminded you often, I hope they enjoy the goodness they receive in this lifetime because God will not endure with them forever. Whatever goodness they receive from God's hand today, whatever grace they enjoy today, and they do, they reach out their hand joyfully receiving the good gifts of God while rejecting him as the giver. Therefore, any good gifts they receive today will be the only good they receive because when they close their eyes in this life, they will open them in the next to nothing but his wrath. Scripture makes this clear, Romans 2, 4. Do you presume on the riches of his, that is God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness was meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The more of these gifts you receive and the more you turn your face away from God, the more these good gifts you receive and the longer you resist repentance, 
the greater the pile of wrath you will find waiting for you on the other side of this life. But we know that can't be the grace that Paul's talking about here, can we? He's making clear that he is talking to the saints who are in Ephesus, to those who God has not destined for wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember everything that we talked about last week in verse 7. The immeasurable riches of his grace toward us. I told you that was the gospel. All the things that we know about God as magnificent and, and praiseworthy as they are. They would only be terror for man had they not been turned toward you. Christ Jesus dying and rising from the dead. That's great news. But Christ Jesus dying and raising from the dead for you. That's life. So these aren't the people who receive the good gifts of God, these gifts of common grace from God, only to turn away and find that they stand against them in judgment at the end of time. No, these are those who the grace of God has broken in and bestowed infinite riches into their life, chasing them down into eternity future. And what does Paul say is the ultimate reason? What's the differentiating factor? Think about the first three verses that we read here in chapter 2. It's a statement of all of mankind. We're children of wrath. Why? Because we're following after the desires of our mind and our flesh. The passions of our flesh that are all in opposition to God. Following after the prince of the power of the air. Satan himself. Dead in our sins. And then he shifts to these next three verses where he talks about all the good things that God has done. All the good things that God desires to do. And I draw your attention. I pause every time I read those two three-letter words right there at the beginning of verse 4. But God. But God. What is the driver of that but God? How does that but God come breaking in? He tells us. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You'll notice there was no change and no activity on the part of the man. We were all still going along with the patterns of this world. We were all still spiritually dead. We were all still in love with the things of this world. We were all still joyfully following after the prince of the power of the air. No activity, no change, no, uh, no momentum by man. It was all on the part of God, but God. And to make clear that we know where this comes from, he says, by grace, you have been saved. It is grace that makes all the difference. That's basic science or investigation, isn't it? You come to something, you say, okay, something has changed here. The thing went in looking like this. It came out looking like this. What is the variable? What is the one piece that changed? Well, it wasn't man and it isn't God. The man was still dead. God is unchanging. What's the difference? Grace. By grace, you have been saved, brought from death to life, moved from wrath to eternal pleasures. By grace, you have been saved. The Apostle Paul, he broke off right there. He doesn't even wait till he gets to verse 8 because he wants to make sure that you recognize this thing I'm talking about. This is salvation. Being brought from death to life, being raised with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places, having a promised future inheritance. Grace is that will never run out. This thing, this is salvation. When you come to people and you ask them, brother, are you saved? This is what you're asking. Have you been saved? Saved from what? The wrath of God. Did God save you from God? That he may pour infinite blessings into your life. 
He wants to make clear, you know, this thing I'm talking about, it is salvation. And this salvation, it comes by grace. That's the answer. That's why one man is saved and another is not. That's why one brother finds himself in heaven at the end of this life and another in hell. It is the grace of God. By grace, you have been saved through faith. But if we're not careful, here's the way that our minds work, okay? Some of this is just our own faulty thoughts. Some of this is traditions that maybe we've grown up under. But here's the way that we will take this verse and we'll change it. We will take... By grace, you have been saved through faith. And we will turn this into, by grace, God sent his son to die so that thereby he could extend to you the offer of salvation. That is a true statement. That's a statement that's made in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The grace of God toward the world. Would any who hear this good news, the love of God for all the world. My son has come. He has died. He has risen again. And any who believe on his name, you will not perish. You will live forever. A gracious offer that mankind does not deserve. God did not come to Adam and Eve in the garden and say, obey me and live, disobey me and die. But there's a second chance on the back end of this thing. But I'm going to step in in grace. Did not owe this promise, did not owe this offer, did not owe this extension of grace and love that he extended to the whole of mankind anybody and yet he gave it and the reality is that plenty of men they receive this news they hear this news and they still wake up in hell they still find themselves separated for all eternity from God so clearly that's not what Paul's talking about here because he's talking about those who have been brought from death to life those who have been saved he says by grace you have been saved just slow down and read the words you don't have to be a Greek expert in this. You don't have to go back to the original sources. Just read the word by grace. You have been saved. He's got an audience in mind here. This grace has a target. It has an aim. It has a goal. And it reaches it. Who's he talking to here? How did he begin his letter? Grace to you. Who's he speaking to? To the saints who are in Ephesus. Those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. This grace has a target. It hits the target. This isn't a grace that God is just strewning about randomly. He's not just walking through a crowd like a parade and throwing candy out to the children. He's not hiding Easter eggs along the way wondering if somebody's going to find it. He's a sniper. He's got an aim, and the aim was you. You who he chose before the foundation of the world. You who he predestined for adoption through his son, Christ Jesus. You. By grace, you have been saved. Now, that's one word in the Greek. It's a passive tense, perfected verb. That means it's a thing that's already happened, the consequences of which carry on now, today, even in this moment. But it's done. It's completed. It has happened. You have been saved. Redemption accomplished. Not just offered, guaranteed and done. Your salvation coming by grace. But what part of salvation? What part of salvation is he talking about here? What portion of salvation comes by grace? All of it. 
from start to finish. Go back to Ephesians 1.5. He says this, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Why would we praise the glory of his grace? Because it's by that grace that he has predestined you. Go to 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Why did he save us? Why did he call us? Not because of anything you did, because of his purpose and because of his grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The grace and the purposes of God coming into your life before there was a world, before there was a you, before there was the thought of you anywhere other than in the mind and the will and the purposes of God, this predestining grace, this saving grace, the purposes of God that have come and brought you from death to life, they were already given to you. They were already yours in Christ Jesus. And this is so very critical for us to grasp because here's what happens if you don't get this. This isn't just a question of soteriology. This is a question of theology proper. This isn't just a question about the way God saves. This is a question about who God is. I need you to listen. If you've got an understanding of salvation that goes something like this. Christ Jesus came to make God gracious towards me. Christ Jesus came and died and rose again to cause God to love me. Then you've missed the plot. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is in love. It was in love that he predestined you. It was in grace that he placed you in Christ Jesus. It was the grace and love and purposes of the father that sent the son. It planned everything that we enjoy now in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you understand me? If you don't hold on to this truth, the love and the grace and the purposes of God and the sending of the Son to redeem a people for himself, then you're always in the back of your mind going to have this concern. But what if that mean Old Testament God breaks through at some point? What if Christ Jesus' intercession fails at some point? What if he has a really bad day at some point? Do you understand? When Christ Jesus says, I and the Father am one, he means one, one in nature, one in substance, one in purpose. So he came and died, not to make God gracious toward us. He came and died because God is gracious towards us. But it doesn't just remain there in eternity past in the mind and the will and the purpose of God. It comes in the actual accomplishment of redemption. Again, going back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, right on the heels of verse 5 that we just read, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Christ Jesus coming and redeeming us, giving his blood for our salvation to propitiate the wrath of the Father. That was in and of itself a part of the riches of his grace. So not only do we see God's grace in, a, in redemption planned, but we see the grace of God in redemption accomplished in Christ Jesus. But what about with regards to us? That was 2,000 years ago. What about with where we stand today as saints in Crosby? Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, do you hear that? The grace and the goodness and the loving kindness of God, the hesed of God, the steadfast love of God breaking into time and history. That love which God had planned from before the foundation of the world that came and caused Christ Jesus to lay down his life to redeem us from slavery to sin. It came breaking into our life that we might be justified in him. Do you see it? It's all of grace. Grace in the planning. Grace in the accomplishing, grace in the applying, the grace of God from start to finish is the reason why you, why you are saved. Salvation is by the grace of God. Grace of God. There was a day when you were walking along like a child of wrath, like the rest of mankind, and happy to do it, following the passions of your flesh and your mind and were by nature children of wrath. But you did not recognize this wrath because you had always lived in it. It was always the water that you had swimmed in. Swimmed? I went to Rice. <laughs> it was always the water that you had swum in. And then this efficacious grace of God that does something, that accomplishes something, that brings about its purpose. It came breaking in, and he saved us. By his grace, you are saved. But not just at the moment of your justification. Not just at that moment when you first believed. In the whole of walking out this Christian life. See, many people, that's the way they, they understand this thing to work. Look, it's grace, grace. It's all of grace that I've come to believe, that I've come to be saved, that I've come to be redeemed in Christ Jesus. And now it's up to me. Now it's up to my efforts and my works. And I need to grip my teeth and bear down hard if I'm going to continue on in this salvation. I'm going to walk out this life of holiness. That's not the picture at all. Paul won't allow us to hold on to such ideas. The most recent text I've been working on, these are children. I'll be, I'll be frank. I'd fallen into the lazy habit of memorizing individual verses or a couple of verses at a time. And Miss Heidi's challenge to our children has reminded me that I'm meant to memorize larger chunks of Scripture. Chapters. I'm not, not yet on um, some people's level. I'm not going to look at her where you memorize entire books. But... But chunks of scripture in their context is very meaningful and it's helpful. And so right around Easter time over Holy Week, I was working on 1 Corinthians 15, 9. And so immediately these thoughts, these words from Paul came to my mind. I am what I am by the grace of God. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than all the rest and yet it is not I but God's grace in me. I am what I am by the grace of God. Not just a Christian, but a saint who walks in holiness. My grace for you is sufficient is what the Lord told him. What do you need to walk out this life of holiness? This isn't just a call to apostleship. This is what does it mean to be a saint that perseveres to the end? What does it mean to please God in this lifetime? What do I need? You need my grace. My grace is sufficient for everything that you need. Because what is grace? It's not a substance. It's not a thing. It's me. I'm your God and you are my people. 
So what do you need to walk out this life of holiness? You need me in you. By my grace, you are what you are. My grace is sufficient. And everything that you will do, you will do in my power because of my grace. So we receive the grace of God, grace that reaches from eternity past into the present in the giving of the life of the Son of God, coming into our life that we might be justified by faith in him and then chasing us off through into eternity as he continues to work this thing out in us by his grace. And again, I say not just in this life, but for all eternity. There will never be a day when we receive anything from God that is not of grace. There will never be a day when we can look up and say, well, look at these gifts we have earned from God. That's what we studied last week in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, what is the grounding of the gifts of God in the coming ages? So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of what? His grace. It's always in Christ Jesus. It's always the unmerited favor of God. It's only what, always what Christ Jesus has purchased for us. That's always the grounding and the basis for anything we receive from the hand of God. Again, I tell you, the whole of salvation, the planning, the accomplishing, the saving, the justifying, the sanctifying, the carrying us on into glory, it is all of grace. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you are being saved. By grace, you will be saved. God's grace is the cause of your salvation. The only cause of your salvation. Sola gratia. By grace alone. What did Jonathan Edwards say? The only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. It's all of grace, completely of God. The Father planning, the Son accomplishing, the Spirit applying. Now, were there other attributes of God involved? Yes, there was wisdom, and there was power, and there was might, and there was goodness, and there was justice, and there was holiness, and there was His unchanging nature. All of these things at play, but without grace, none of these things would have been for you. It's grace that makes it the gospel. It's grace that makes it for you. It's grace that makes all the difference. It's all of grace. I ask you this morning, did you come to Christ as a pauper and a beggar? Did you come to Christ like the tax collector standing there in the temple beating his chest saying, God, have mercy. I've got nothing to offer you. I've got nothing to promise you. I know myself good well enough that I can't promise I'm going to be a good boy tomorrow. I throw myself upon you and I plead for mercy and I plead for grace. Nothing in my hands I bring. Did you come to Christ like this and then turn around and try to walk it out in your own power? Did you come like the prodigal son but then walk out of there like the older brother? Do you find yourself resenting God and saying, well, you never threw me a party. Do you find yourself waking up in the morning with great sense of anxiety and discouragement and fear and fretting because you're not as holy as you thought you should be by now and you're worried that maybe, just maybe, God has abandoned you? Just maybe you've crossed some invisible line. Just maybe he's not completely and totally for you. If you come to Christ and trusting in nothing but grace, but then tried to walk it out in morality and pietism. 
It's one thing to sit in this room and say, no, it's all of grace. I trust it's all of grace. But I ask you, is that the way you live? Is that the way you pray? Is that your attitude when you come to study God's word in the morning? Is that your heart behind your giving and your worship? I've talked before about how heartbreaking it would be, I am certain of this, if Amanda were to come home and to find the girls frantically cleaning up the living room, she'd be happy if they were cleaning the living room, but if she came home and, I never put y'all in sermons, one time. <laughs> Amanda comes home, all right, the Henderson kids. So if you came home, <laughs> if you came home and you found Peyton frantically cleaning up the living room and you're like, Peyton, thank you so much for doing this. Why, but why, why, why are you doing this? Because mommy, I want you to love me. I want you to kick me out. You stay with me till the end. Versus she comes home and she finds Peyton cleaning up the living room and she says, Peyton, why have you done this? She said, Mommy, because you love me. You've done so much for me. And I know that this would please you. I know that this would honor you. You see the difference. But I'm that first kid. I find myself continually falling into the trap of that first kid. I remind you that you are saved completely and totally of grace, apart from keeping one single commandment. Do you understand this? You did not keep one single commandment that played any role in your salvation. It was all of grace. You came to him with empty hands, knowing you had nothing to offer. Now trust that that's the way he's going to carry you through to the end. Trust that that's the way he's going to lead you into eternity of pleasures at his right hand. You came with empty hands and you continue to walk with empty hands. What do these empty hands look like? Paul says, faith. That's how this grace comes to us. You see, there's this caricature of people that think about the Bible the way that I think about the Bible and think about God the way that I think about God. And the caricature is, well, if you believe that this grace of God if you believe that the saving grace of God has been placed upon you before the foundation of the world, and you believe that those things which God has planned in eternity past are guaranteed to happen, then what's the point in ever doing anything? If the grace of God is already yours in Christ Jesus before there was a world, then why don't you just lay under a tree and wait for this grace to hit you? Beyond that, why do you ever share the gospel with anyone? Why do you call anyone to repent and believe that the grace of God is a guaranteed thing for those who are his? Saints chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, those who have been predestined. Then what's the point in any of this? If God is who he says he is, when he says, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. Why? Well, because scripture says you've been saved through, by grace, through faith. Faith is the instrument. It's the conduit. It's the channel through which God brings this grace into your life. This salvation which has been promised. It comes to us through faith. Why not through love? Why not through mercy? Why not through knowledge? Why is it faith? Because again I say faith are empty hands. Faith points to another. Faith directs away from you and on to somebody else. Faith confesses I am void of anything. That can contribute to this thing. I must trust in you and you completely. That is faith. But we must remember, faith is not the source of your salvation. Faith is not the cause of your salvation. You're saved by grace, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. 
And he said, you'll receive that grace. I will pour that grace into your life through faith, through the empty hands of faith. So we're joined to Christ Jesus. Now again, I tell you, faith is not the cause. Faith is not the reason. Some of us have this Tinkerbell idea of faith and God. As if God is up in heaven, he just wants people to believe. I mean, God wouldn't exist anymore if we all just agreed not to believe in him, right? And so as a reward for your belief, he gives you salvation. As if, as if faith in and of itself were a meritorious work. As if faith in and of itself were the grounds that earned you the reward of eternal life. Nor must we fall for the lie that somehow faith fills in the gap at the end of our righteousness. You've accomplished 10% righteousness or 20% righteousness or 30% righteousness, but you fell short. And what God did was he said, here's some extra credit for you. Believe and I'll fill in the rest. Neither one of those two things are true. When he says that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, that's because what God demands is absolute righteousness. Because God is not only a gracious and merciful and loving God, he is a holy and just God. Why does it say that we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind? Because a holy God cannot stand one ounce of sin standing before him. What he requires... What he requires of man to not just be forgiven, not just be taken back to neutral, but to have these infinite eternal blessings waiting for us in heaven. What is required? Absolute obedience, the fulfillment of all righteousness. This is the text that David has read for us. The righteousness of Christ Jesus credited to our account. So what is faith? Faith of the empty hands by which we receive Christ Jesus, by which we are joined to Christ, Christ Jesus so that his righteousness might be credited to our account. Do you understand? Romans 3 says this, beginning of verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. How do we deal with the problems in the first three, first three verses? How do we deal with the children of wrath? That's right here, the propitiation in his blood, that wrath poured out upon his son. And it finishes by saying to be received by faith. What Christ Jesus has accomplished can be yours if you receive it with empty hands of faith. That's the picture. Laying hold of Christ. The empty hands of faith. And God will not do the believing for you. You see, he goes on to say that this is not of works. What are works generally in the life of Paul and the writings of Paul? Works are anything we do that we seek to merit God's favor. Any work that we do that might seek to please God. He's saying it's not of works, but this doesn't mean you don't do anything. And that's where this thing goes off the tracks for some people. We talk about the grace of God accomplishing the whole of our salvation. And then they come to all the passages in the scripture that say, do something. Sirs, what must we do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It says right here to do something. You said God had done it all. Christ Jesus comes and what is he saying? Repent and believe in the gospel. You look at your own experience. What was your own experience? Didn't you do something? Of course you did. You believed. You really did it. 
It wasn't a smoke screen. It wasn't an illusion. God didn't do the believing for you. You believed. And faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. So we preach the word. We share the gospel. We exhort men to repent and believe. And again, I tell you, it's your belief. What did he say in chapter 1, verse 13? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now all of a sudden we got some tension. Not tension in the text. Not disagreement in the text. But in our little pea brains. Because he's saying you were saved by grace. Grace which was yours before the foundation of the world. Grace which always hits its mark. Grace which always leads to its desired effect. Grace which guarantees your salvation. You are saved by grace. And you don't get that grace unless you believe. So go preach to people and call them to believe. You've just got to get comfortable with the reality that Scripture is going to say some things that won't make you real comfortable. His ways aren't our ways, and they're going to make you incredibly uncomfortable. How can you say that this grace is guaranteed, but i got to do the believing? We're going to preach the whole counsel of God's word. You've got to learn to be comfortable with that tension. Not just here, all over. All over. Particularly, you've got to be comfortable with a category of things where God can guarantee that a thing is going to happen, and yet some things must happen in order for that thing to happen. And many of the things that have got to happen in order for that thing to happen, we might chalk up to a thing called will, the will of man. It's all over Scripture. Christ Jesus must be born in Bethlehem. How'd that happen? An evil king had to, had to call a census. He had to be driven into Egypt and then called out of Egypt. How'd that happen? That same evil king had to, had to require, his, uh, had to take the life of all the babies there in that town. He had to have no bones of his body broken. How did that have to happen? The soldiers had to do something that was very, very out of the ordinary. Christ Jesus had to die upon the cross at that very moment, on that very day. How did that have to happen? The choices of Judas and Pilate and Herod and the Jews and all the rest. There were choices that men had to make in order to carry out this thing that God had guaranteed would happen. You've just got to make a room of thought in our mind for those two things to be true at the same time. Trusting that God will reveal to us how this is possible at the end of this life. But he seems to give us a hint here. And time is short. I'm going to point you to how the Apostle Paul and the rest of Scripture seems to tell us this thing might be possible. But I'm going to leave it up to you to go and work it out. I know you people by now, and you're not the people that show up to be spoon-fed. David and I were talking about preaching. I, I, I'm, I can't tell you how excited I am that he got up here. Now we talk about, we're talk, not that he wasn't a preacher before, but you know what I mean? Like we're talking about, let's talk about this, right? One of the things we talked about is that our job isn't to do all the digging for you. Sometimes our digging is just, sometimes our job is just to dig a little bit, see something, look at you and go, hey, would you look at that? You might want to dig a little bit here. You're not the people that showed up to be spoon-fed and told what to think. 
But he seems to be giving us at least a hint at the answer right here. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. The thing that Christ guaranteed would happen, the thing that was yours before the foundation of the world, that will only come into your life if you exercise faith, if you turn and trust in Jesus Christ. And then what's he say? And this, not of your own doing. What is this? What is this thing that is not of your own doing? I charge you to go and figure that out. Is it the grace? That seems kind of obvious. Grace comes from God. Like you don't do grace. When's the last time you... It comes from God. So that's probably not it. Is it the salvation? Maybe. You don't save yourself. Is it the faith? Is it the whole thing? From start to finish, the work of God. This not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. A couple more passages I think might help you in your journey. Acts 13, 48. The gospel is preached to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Appointed to eternal life, by the efficacious grace of God, and therefore, they believed. Paul says in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. It has been appointed to you, granted for the sake of God, for the sake of Christ, that you should suffer and that you should believe. I would ask you to go home and read that entire section of John 10 where he talks about those who are his sheep and those who are not. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. Then they follow me. I know their name. The Father has given them to me. They hear my voice. They know my voice. I know their name. And they follow me. And then when a bunch of people didn't believe, he looked at them and said, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Because that grace of God that had been given to my sheep in eternity past, it's not yours. Therefore, you don't believe. Got one analogy. I don't use analogies very often. If this one doesn't work, I'm just gonna zoop. You ever seen that on, uh, I'm just gonna erase your memories if this doesn't work. When I was a kid, I never won anything when I was a kid. Like, like a prize, I won lots of trophies. But I didn't win like any, any like major awards, leg lamps or any of that. And so, I'll never forget, I had, about, I had got about a box of uh, Fruit Loops. And on the back of the box of Fruit Loops, I realized that I had won a pogo ball. Do you remember pogo balls? It was like a ball on the top, the ball on the bottom, and then a disc you stood on. And so it was like a, it was a pogo ball. I was so excited. I'd won this free pogo ball. And then I began to read through the instructions. And it said, no problem. You just cut out the back of this box. You send it to us along with $8 shipping and handling. Well, in 1984, $8 shipping and handling, to me, might as well have been a bazillion dollars. You're probably not going to be surprised to know I called those people. <laughs> I said, I don't have $8, man. We spent $2 on this box of cereal. Can you, can you take that off the $8? What can we do here? Can you work with me? The guy said, no problem. You just got to come to us. They were in California. All you got to do is come to us, and we'll <laughs> let you go into the storehouse and get your own. That might as well have been the moon. Beloved, I'm telling you, Christ Jesus doesn't just come and offer you the gift of salvation. He pays the shipping 
and the handling. And he makes sure it gets to you. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. You're a good and gracious God to an undeserving people. And we praise you that this salvation, which is ours, is all of you. We would have messed it up. A million points along the way, we would have messed it up. But God, in your pursuing and efficacious grace, you have carried us along from start to finish. So we thank you, Father, that we need not be worried that we're going to fall short or turn away before the end. Father, I pray your grace and your mercy upon this people. I pray any among us that are yet still dead in sins that you would call them to life. That you would call them by name and that you would save them. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.